Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. to Lost in Science for another week and we have quite a show for you this week. All the best in science. My name's Claire and this week, well, I have a story, a very special story about dust. 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 Anybody? No. Dust. (laughs) (laughs) I was cleaning up my vacuum cleaner yesterday and I'm like, what the hell is this? There was this urban myth <laughs> getting around skin. that is all human skin. Is it really human skin? What else is in there? Um, and then I had a look into this and some people have done quite a lot of scientific study on, dust. on household dust, what's Great. in it. And look, it, it's a little bit mind-blowing um, mm. what is contained within dust. Is there a name for like dustology or... Um... I think you just made it up, Chris. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> We'll have to look into that one. Dustrophysics. Oh, oh no. yeah. That doesn't really work. No, mm. that, got, that got some pained looks there from Maybe <laughs> that would be the physics of how dust bunnies form because yeah. that's pretty interesting like, as yeah. well. Like the formation of galaxies but yeah. with dust. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Stu, what do you have for us this week? Uh, well, I'm going to be talking about uh, a particular guy, a particular scientist who came up with an equation that made all the evolutionary biologists in the world sit up and take notice but then he wasn't very happy with what it actually meant for evolution. So there's a guy called uh, George Price who came up with the Price equation, which is used in evolutionary biology to predict how beneficial particular traits are right. in, in the offspring of you know a generation. Okay. Um, but what it meant for behavioural aspects upset him quite a bit. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So someone's twisted it a little bit. And no, no, no. It actually no. carries through. It's it's very, very solid reasoning. Mm. That, but he didn't like it. But he didn't like what okay. it meant for behaviour. Interesting. So I'll talk about that in oh, some detail. I'm looking forward to that. Mm. Chris? Well, I have an interview with physicist Magdalena Zick from the University of Queensland about an experiment which is like a quantum update of a famous experiment that Galileo did. I don't know if you remember that. Galileo did a thing where he dropped two weights, supposedly. Then he dropped two weights of the Leaning Tower of Pisa to see yes. that they both fell at the mm-hmm. same rate. Yeah. Yep. Now there is a basically a quantum equivalent of that has been done uh, using a very what clever they, way. What are they dropping? Rubidium atoms. Uh-huh. Not, not Just... from the Leaning Tower, though. <laughs> not from the Leaning Tower. Although the experiment was done in Italy. So, yeah. Nah. It all mm. ties back together. It does tie back together. Mm. I was doing one of my most hated jobs the other day, cleaning out the vacuum cleaner. Hate that job. I Why? just hate vacuuming in general. I'd rather vacuum than clean out the vacuum cleaner, though. Yeah, the dust gets everywhere, and like you have to shake it all out, and you have to like do the hokey pokey. Yeah, you got to do the hokey pokey. <laughs> I find it strangely satisfying just emptying the dust out. Yeah, it always gets all it gets everywhere. It's yeah. gross. You've got, you've got to get one of those vacuum cleaners where you just take the whole bag and throw it in the bin. That's very environmentally unresponsible. Oh, yeah, it's a paper bag. Mm. I'm living in a bagless world, Stu. 
but I mean, it's 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 to my detriment, obviously. <laughs> anyway, it got me thinking about dust and what the hell it is. Is it as innocuous as I think it is? You know, just a little bit of dust. Or are there some hidden baddies lying waiting in those dust bunnies that are getting around um, my floor? Your polished and, uh, floorboards. My polished floorboards, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And are dust bunnies actually related to real bunnies? <laughs> no, I think when will we to, find that out? Related yeah. to chocolate bunnies. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first things first, we should address the, um, the dust bunny in the room. The urban myth, I think uh, we've all heard that 80% of the dust in your house is actually dead skin cells. We've all heard this, right? Mm. Yeah. Someone's been like, oh, did you know? Did you know uh, 80% of the uh, dust in your house is actually dead skin cells? I find that hard to believe. I don't have that many people come to my house. <laughs> and you don't believe that you could shed that much skin, I don't, right? I don't, no. no. And you're right because that is, it's, it's not true um, unless you're losing a hell of a lot of skin and you're not taking any showers or like <laughs> shaving or anything like that. That is the only way that you're going to be um, losing that much skin. For sure. So as you may have guessed, there are actually far more common sources of dust than your skin. Uh, so these include things like dirt, uh-huh. pollen, mm-hmm. carpet fluff, clothes fibres, yep. um, animal, uh, you know, like the, the dandruff, the dander that comes off of um, cats and dogs. Yep. Yeah. So um, you have a cat, don't you? I, I have a cat. Yep. Cat, cat fur. Cat fur. Yep. As well. What about what about like pollution from the outside? Pollution. There? Yep. Yep. Like. Like soot. Yeah, mm. yeah, I get and a bit of that. pollution from the outside. How and about also, dust mite poo? Dust mite poo, yes. So insect waste. <laughs> oh, that, okay. That, that, that falls under insect waste. Also, flour from the kitchen. Um, if you're a baker, oh, you might okay. get a lot of dust that's flour. Anyway, the point is most of the dust that ends up in your house is actually from the outside. So every time you open a window or a door or you walk dirt in on your feet – so you stir up and move tiny airborne particles like the pollen and the soot um, into the house and then they eventually settle in the house. So that's all well and good, but what about the other things that might enter the house through um, this dust that might come along for the ride? Like nanomachines. <laughs> no, um, I, I mean, they are a type of nanomachines. Yeah. I am talking about bacteria. And oh, okay, okay, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess... In the future, maybe. Maybe, maybe. So in the US, scientists published a study in 2015 analysing dust samples collected from 1,200 homes around the United States. And what they found was that the dust found in people's homes is actually cohabitating with a few thousand species of bacteria and um, at least 2,000 species of fungi. So there's a very clear sort of ecosystem that goes along with the dust in your house. Now, the research involved a lot of volunteers who were sent sterile cotton bud type things and they were asked to swipe a certain place in their house that the dirt is not disturbed very often. Can you guess where they asked them to swipe? Under the fridge. Ooh, that's a good guess. In the vacuum cleaner. No, not in the vacuum cleaner. Was, that is a good guess as well. I was going to say on top of the TV or something like that. <gasps> it is on top. Oh. It is on top of um, the Washing door. Oh. The oh, door sill oh. thing. Mm, very I, clever. I sometimes <laughs> the get the frame. urge to, to dust that, I've got to say. <laughs> you can't do it then. Yeah. You can't participate. So they got them to swab an inside door, like trim of the door, and an outside door yep. um, and send them to the lab for analysis. Um, And the researchers found um, all sorts of these bacteria and fungi. Most of them were innocuous, but some, oh, and some of them were, you know, seen to be beneficial. Beneficial. 
Yeah, like beneficial bacteria and fungi that, oh, okay. that, that humans have a beneficial right. relationship with. Um, not that, you know, they were doing housework around. No, no, don't, you go, oh, <laughs> don't disturb that dust. That dust, that's beneficial dust. <laughs> Although I'm going to use that excuse. <laughs> Um, but what was quite interesting was the results showed that there was a specific composition of a home's bacterial community and, and the change in the bacterial community depended on whether there was a dog or a cat in the household as well as um, the ratio of men to women in the home. So the changes in the bacterial community were dependent on the people living in the house. Uh, whereas the fungi, fungal community, on the other hand, reflected the climate and the geographical region that the person lived in. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, in other words, if you want to change the um, the types of um, fungi that you live with, um, then you need to move, move town. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you want to change the type of bacteria that you live in, that change you live with, you need to change housemates. Right. Yes. Can you kind of like put some probiotics all over the house, like some yogurt <laughs> or that kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> So that's the living things that are travelling around in our dust. There are also um, other things travelling in our dust, uh, polluting chemicals that get caught up in dust. Um, A 2016 paper showed how some consumer chemicals, including phenols, flame retardants, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and other such things can be found in household dust, and these can be found in quite high levels. Now, the researchers looked at data from 26 different peer-reviewed studies in indoor dust samples, in urban, suburban and rural settings. And they found these chemicals, so these phthalates, phenols and flame retardants in quite high concentrations. Now, the 10 most common chemicals that they found were found in 90% of the samples. So this suggests that they might be present in most people's dust, in most people's home. Um, The most abundant chemical they found was something called this phthalate, PHT. TH, which is why it's so difficult to to pronounce. So this is a chemical that's used in flexible plastics as well as some cosmetics um, and has been linked to developmental issues in mice and whatnot. Although this sounds bad, like we should be maybe vacuuming the top of our doors twice a day, um, it is important to note that the study only looked at the types and the amounts of chemicals that were present in the dust, not necessarily associations with the health of the people who spent time in the places where the dust was were collected. And for many of Across the chemicals, Australia, we don't on the yet community radio uh, know network, what amount should be considered hazardous for long-term in exposure. Science. Um, so don't worry too much about the dust, um, but next time you're emptying out the vacuum cleaner, stop thinking it's just your gross skin. Um, that grime you were disposing of contains multitudes. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection shook up the study of biology and even prompted an essay by a theologian in 1973 called Nothing in Biology Makes Sense Except in the Light of Evolution, which a lot of people were upset about, especially because he was a theologian and shouldn't be saying things like that at the time. (laughs) But uh, the concept of evolution itself had been around for centuries, dating back to even the ancient philosophers who had all sorts of weird ideas about life and where it started and how it changed over time. Uh, but Darwin was the first to identify the mechanism. And while he didn't identify the underlying materials of the mechanism, the DNA that every living cell contains, he noted that every species produced more offspring than could survive and the individuals that best fit their environment would survive and reproduce better than their competitors, and their competitors being 
the individuals of the same species that they are part of. So the discovery of DNA in the 20th century advanced understanding of how those beneficial traits were retained and passed down through generations and how they could be selected for specifically. But even before that, people were mathematically predicting that sort of thing. Guys like Gregor Mendel, who was a monk in the 1800s, who was doing all of his famous experiments with peas, which his gardener probably was fudging the results for, but it worked really well. Is it was it him we got the idea of like genes from? Like there was a gene for a certain trait. Yeah, the name gene way predates the discovery okay. of DNA as the as the mech, you know as the vehicle for the genes. We yeah. didn't we didn't know for years, but they could they talked about genetics for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. So they knew that something um, was being passed on. They just didn't. Know yeah, the they didn't, and they didn't understand how it worked. Yeah, which is. Uh, even though they could predict, you know, they, they already had the concept of uh, dominant and recessive genes even before they knew how mm. that actually even worked. Um, but in evolutionary biology, it was important to understand not just which genes might appear. So when they do those Punnett squares and figure out what proportion of the offspring are going to have different genes, but also to know which ones would be the most beneficial. So you could actually maybe predict which of the organisms that are born will do better in their environment. Um, So this is more or less obvious for certain traits. So if you've got something with, you know, a simple obvious benefit, like for example, if something's got larger leaves, it can absorb more sunlight and the plant will grow better than another plant, potentially, um, in the right environment. Or say producing more nectar in a flower or for animals, something like having better eyesight. So those sort of things you can sort of go, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense why you would why that would be a benefit but one big question for evolutionary biologists were behavioral questions that were not so simple and the big one would be why would it be beneficial for an individual to help another individual survive oh like altruism like altruism Mm. and it was a huge problem because it just doesn't make any sense when you put it into the context of evolution is... Unless, of course, you're helping your offspring. Yeah, potentially. Um, and, and and that happens anyway, but helping individuals who aren't your offspring oh, for the happens of the, as well. Of the um, so this is why they were wondering... Species. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, well, for the population. For the population. At the population level. Um, so why would you do that? So there was an English biologist called W.D. Hamilton who'd worked on this problem... Uh, And then, well, he was a biologist, and then as his work became more related to gene frequency, he ended up doing lots of maths equations uh, on blackboards and not as much, you know, mice in uh, cages. He was working on this problem, and he was approached by another scientist called George Price, who was an American-born chemist who had looked at all Hamilton's work, all of his maths, and improved it and came up with a better equation, basically, Uh, So he showed it to Hamilton, and Hamilton went, wow, that's much better than what we were using. So this is called the Price Equation, and basically it's used by evolutionary biologists everywhere to uh, estimate and track the likelihood in any population of a particular trait, whether it's beneficial or detrimental, and how that will affect the frequency of genes in that population. Is it a complicated equation, the sort of thing you can read out on air? It is not the sort of thing I could read out on air, which is why I'm not even going to try. So in groups of organisms, especially in closely related family groups, helping others in the group who carry the same genes can further the survival chances of those genes. And it was this recognition that led evolutionary biologists to the idea that 
It wasn't individual organisms fighting for survival within a species. It was the genes themselves that were operating. And that's what evolution was working on, not organisms, but genes themselves. And that was a that's huge... Cool. That was a huge shift in, yeah. in theory from uh, from the early 20th century to the latter half of the 20th century, I guess. This was sort of in the 60s where they started figuring this stuff out. So the other thing it revealed was that genes themselves could benefit directly from an organism acting against other individuals who possessed similar genes mm-hmm. but weren't related. Can you give an example? Well, so if if you have an organism that has equally good eyesight as you mm. and you kill that organism, then it doesn't get to reproduce. Yeah, right. So this was what became known as Hamiltonian spite because <laughs> W.D. Hamilton named it, not after himself, but kind of after himself. And what it, what it is is after that... After his spite. Uh, well, after <laughs> the idea that they're doing it out of spite. But I guess the, you know, the, the anthropomorphism of saying they're doing it out of spite and not doing it out of... Uh, an instinctive response to something is kind of... Spite can be fairly instinctive in my experience. True. Um, so it, that actually, that describes a whole bunch of behaviours which otherwise you wouldn't really be able to describe. But it all flows from the Price equation. Now, when Price came up with this equation, he wasn't a biologist, he was a chemist, and he just had an interest in this stuff. So he got really involved and when he sent his work to Hamilton, he got really uh, disappointed with the upshot of the conclusions that were drawn in that to to the point where he didn't want to really publish anything about it. So it kind of slipped out of people's consciousness and out of evolutionary theory for quite some time. And Mm. it wasn't until much later in the nineties when people really started paying attention to it again. So the, the thing that he really didn't like about it was that, uh, the idea that kindness was a genetic trait, uh, he didn't really want to deal with it, um, mm. so he didn't continue the work. He thought that, you know, people behaving nicely towards each other was kind of a free will act that you could, you know, that mm. you could just choose to be nice to people, and that was a good thing to work towards. So he um, stopped uh, stopped working on it, but uh, it, it was pretty important for everyone else who was working in the field. But I guess uh, w- one of the reasons I was interested by that story is because I think it's a really good example of when you're working in science, you don't always get the answers that you'd like, even though you're doing good science. You're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris. In the late 16th century, the Italian scientist Galileo is said to have performed a famous experiment where he dropped different sized weights from the Leaning Tower of Pisa to demonstrate that they fell at the same rate under gravity. Now, over 420 years later, some other Italian physicists have done a quantum version of that experiment that was based on a proposal by Magdalena Zich from the University of Queensland. And I have Magdalena on the line to tell us more about it. Thank you for joining us, Magdalena. Hi, everyone. Now, both Galileo's experiment and this quantum one are tests of the equivalence principle. Can you explain for us what the equivalence principle is? It basically says that in order for the theory of gravity that Einstein proposed, for general relativity, in order for this theory to work, you need that the mass of a body that describes how it responds to push must be the same as the mass that responds to a very specific force that is gravity. 
And this is not at all necessary if you just look at the Newtonian formulation of gravity. And therefore, it has been a puzzle really for many centuries because it appeared to be a fact. And as you mentioned, Galileo has tested it. And in fact, already people in ancient Egypt knew about this and they were puzzled by this fact. But then it's only in general relativity, it has been realized that these two really must be the same and there is an underlying deepened reason for it. So if you test this equivalent, so if you test whether the so-called inertial mass and the gravitational mass are equal, you test one of the cornerstones of general relativity. I imagine that this is very difficult to do, particularly with an experiment like this, because quantum physics tends to describe very small things like atoms, and the gravitational force on atoms is very small. So how does this experiment get around that? How do you measure the gravitational force on atoms? All right, this is an excellent question, and this is exactly why this equivalence principle is so well amenable to test with small masses. Because one of the consequences is, in fact, that any object, no matter whether it's very light or very heavy, will fall under gravity with the same acceleration. So even though the force is very small, also the mass is very small, so the accelerations are the same, whether you have a very heavy object or you have a very small atom. So this makes it doable in principle. Now one can ask, how do you actually manipulate the atoms? And if you want, I can tell a little bit about this. Yeah, sure. I'm sure it's fairly complicated. Yeah, the principle is quite simple. So you can shine a laser light on an atom Mm -hmm. and you can arrange it such um, that that photons that comprise the, uh, the laser light will kick the atom in just the right way so that you can force it to move up and then force it back to move down. And you can do that with the atoms in so-called superposition state. So where the atom goes up and down at the same time. And in this way, you can read out very tiny effects that, that gravity and the acceleration will have on the atomic state. So it is a little bit like using laser light as a ruler to read out what the atom is doing. But you're also using the laser to bounce them up and down, are you? Yep, yep. Okay, so I believe these were rubidium atoms that you used in this experiment. Yep. The, the different weights that you had, though, was that different types of atoms, or how did you get different weights of atoms? Yeah, this is actually something that is the very heart of the proposal and what makes it different from any, th- any other experiment that has been done so far. So what, uh, what has been done in this experiment was to prepare an atom in a superposition state of two different masses at the same time. So this is a little bit like when one of the astronauts from the Apollo mission dropped the hammer and the feather on the moon. So it's like preparing a quantum state of a mass that is a little bit a feather and a little bit a hammer in a quantum superposition state. So a new quality. Uh, And this allows to test aspects of the principle that are not possible to test if you just prepare a specific state and then compare to a specific state of another system or the same system when you manipulate it uh, again in a new experiment. So the different masses, though, they were they like having different energies of the atoms and using E equals MC squared and that kind of principle? Right. That's exactly right. So that's what we have exploited. So, yep. so the, um, there must be tiny, tiny differences in energy then. It must be a very accurate experiment to be able to measure that such difference. This is true. And the reason why this experiment at all could give quite a large precision uh, is because of the very clever setup that the group of Giulio Maltino, so he's the head of the experimental troop that worked on that paper, 
they have a very clever setup where in fact they have sort of like doubled the whole machinery and then they not only compare how atoms respond to gravity with the laser ruler, they do it simultaneously in two independent experiments and in this way they can read the very, very tiny effect even though of course there is a lot of noise, everything moves a little bit. In fact, even if people move around in the lab, this can give unwanted spurious uh, noise in such very high-precision experiments. But they've been able to, to make a very clever use of two setups in order to extract the actual uh, relevant data. Okay. Now, does this have any consequence for the development of a quantum theory of gravity, considering that you've essentially confirmed that uh, one of the basics of Einstein's theory must apply at the quantum level? I would say yes and no. Depends uh, where one would like to drive future direction of quantum gravity research. In fact, quite universally, many quantum gravity frameworks predict that at some levels, when our experiments will become more and more precise, we should expect some deviation from uh, the equivalence principle. The fact that equivalence principle has not been tested for atoms in superposition wouldn't necessarily mean that we should expect that there maybe the violation could be seen easier. So we didn't, in fact, quite yet expect that we could test directly some of the quantum gravity effects. But this is one of the first steps to make uh, better setups and also to probe complementary aspects where some of the more exotic aspects of the theory could be tested. So indeed, there could be theories that can be compared against our data and disproved. So in this, in this sense, it, can, it adds another, uh, another brick of knowledge and, and bounds possible theories. Great. So apart from this work, what else are you working on at the moment? Well, since you asked about quantum gravity, I guess that just uh, triggers some thoughts. Some things I've been, I've been working recently have a little bit to do with some of the concepts that we expect to be relevant in quantum gravity. And this is a concept of time that maybe would require a quantum description. So one of the strongest lines of my research is to devise experimental proposals, so similar to the one that actually has been realized by the group of Tino, where you can prepare an atom. In this case, you would treat it not as a test mass, but you would prepare it in a state that can act as a clock. And you again will try to use the superposition principle of quantum theory to force your clock to move at different trajectories, where according to the theory of, of gravity devised by Einstein, you expect that there will be different amount of time that will elapse for the atom depending where it moves. So you've probably heard about the twin paradox, where a pair of twins separate and one goes on a rocket and the other stays, and when the, when the twins reunite, they discover that they have aged differently. Mm -hmm. uh, so I realized that if you make such an experiment uh, with a single quantum particle, you can make such a test with just one twin or a quantum-only child, which moves in a quantum superposition along two trajectories once and becomes older and younger than himself. And this will allow you to say something about whether the nature of time really uh, must be fundamentally classical or whether it actually would require quantum description already at the scales where direct quantum gravity effects are not yet uh, observable. Well, that sounds quite amazing. Well, it is a fascinating topic. I yeah. agree. Well, thank you very much. Good luck with that. And thank you for coming on on the program. Thank you very much. Goodbye, everyone. That was Magdalena Zick from the University of Queensland.
That's all we have for you on Lost in Science today. Lost in Science is recorded in the 3CR studios and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find us on the email at lostinsight.gmail.com, on Twitter or on Facebook, or maybe just tune in next week when the team get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.